Spiked is free and it always will be. There's no paywall and no subscriptions. We want to reach as many people as possible. But to do that, we need your help. If you support the work that we do, why not become a regular donor? As little as £5 a month is enough to make a huge difference. Whatever you can give is greatly appreciated, especially with all that's going on in the world at the moment. If you want to make a regular donation, then all you have to do is go to spiked-online.com and hit the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. People need to have their own space. They need to have their own boundaries. They need to have their own sovereignty because sovereignty isn't just simply an empty rhetorical principle. Sovereignty is something that people live. It's integral to their their lives, and we can learn from that. And no matter what happens in the weeks and the months ahead, the very fact that Ukraine demonstrated that these issues are of tremendous importance, they are central to our future, provides us with a very important lesson that's been forgotten by the people that run our societies here in the West. And it's about time that they woke up to reality Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Frank Ferreira. Frank is a frequent contributor to Spiked. He is the Emeritus Professor of Sociology at the University of Kent, He is a prolific author with a particular focus on the culture of fear and the sociology of knowledge. His recent books include First World War, Still No End in Sight, How Fear Works, The Culture of Fear in the 21st Century, Why Borders Matter, and most recently, 100 Years of Identity Crisis, The Culture War Over Socialization. I talked to Frank about the war in Ukraine and what it tells us about geopolitics, history, and the culture war. So Frank, you, you've written a piece for Spiked about Ukraine and the revenge of history, just looking at the way in which this conflict reminds us that history is not as resolved as we might have thought it was. And we have a tendency in the West to believe that we live in a post-history, post-conflict, post-nationhood, post-borders world, everything is post. Uh, but this war really reminds us that those issues and problems and conflicts still exist and not very far away from us. So just to kick off, how significant do you think this conflict is, not only for the people of Ukraine, but also globally and what it tells us about the state of the world and the state of politics in the West? I think it's very important because it brings to a head a problem which has been under the surface for a very long time, which is that Many nations and their governments have uh, lost the capacity to think about geopolitics, to develop uh, a a kind of foreign policy that matches their national interest. And because of that, you had a situation where uh, there's an assumption that the fantasy of globalization would somehow solve all the problems Mm -hmm. of the world, that uh, you'd have these liberal democracies springing up left and right, you know, all these... uh, Spring revolutions would create great nations, democratic, liberal nations. You had the fantasy that it was no longer possible 
to imagine that there will be a third world war or, or anything like that. And as a result of that, you, had, uh, you have a phenomena where uh, a very infantilized uh, form of uh, foreign governance exists in Europe, also in America, which basically uh, looks at things in a very kind of uh, childish kind of way, often in a way that makes it impossible to separate it from their own domestic concerns. Mm. So America, a very good example in the way that both Trump and Biden and before that Hillary Clinton somehow uh, interweave their uh, their kind of electoral interests with the issues to do with Ukraine and Russia and forgetting the fact that these were these things had to be separated off and because if you didn't separate them off you ended up essentially you know sort of fighting out little wars in another part of the world uh, and in the meantime you lose sight of the fact that these countries were in the business of fighting for their own national interests. So one of the things that you talk about in the most recent piece you've done for us on Spite is how the corrosion of historical thinking and his, the historical imagination has contributed to the kind of geopolitical idiocy that we see around us at the moment. So there's a link between uh, the idea of post-history, the idea that history is a settled business, it doesn't really impact on us in the way that it did in the past, and the way in which um, Western governments in particular approach international affairs or understand international affairs. I guess, you know, the most obvious example is Fukuyama, the end of history, but the men there are many other examples of this notion that with the end of the Cold War in the late 1980s and early 1990s, all of the big questions of the 20th century and earlier had largely been resolved in the favour of the West and give or take a few wars in Iraq and Syria and Afghanistan, things would generally be okay. So how do you understand that link between the self-deception that history was a done deal and the way in which we now approach international affairs, global questions, geopolitical issues. How do you understand the link between those two things? I think the link is this very uh, presentist form of political outlook and intellectual outlook, uh, whereby you don't really see that um, the legacy of the past uh, still hovers over what's happening today. And if you ignore that, if you kind of pretend that somehow the world you know, began in year zero, and the year zero is the end of the Cold War, yeah. then you lose sight of the fact that that actually uh, aspirations and sentiments which are there and have got a, a potentially strong force to it are still very much uh, in play. And I think that one of the, to me, the one of the most interesting things that has occurred is that uh, at the end of the Cold War, there was this kind of uh, very kind of paternalistic Western, very patronizing assumption that we won the war, we can lecture the rest of the world about what the, what a good life is really all about. And uh, precisely as you're, you know, kind of, you're very free with your advice all over the world, and you're sending in NGOs into different parts of Asia and Africa, and even to Europe, uh, your own nation is being divided and is, and, it, and is losing its own sense of self and its own national purpose. America is an, an extreme example where you, where you have a complete segregation along cultural lines occurring, kicking in. Uh, and you now have a situation where you have this very divided nation who is not able to uh, find ways and means of ca ca creating any kind of consensus, feeling 
uh, strong enough and, and, and powerful enough and having the moral authority to tell little Ukraine or, or tell little Taiwan or other parts of the world what they really need. And I think when you have that, when you got that kind of uh, blind, arrogant way of looking at things, you do create a lot of problems, often unwittingly. On that question of unresolved history and, and history kind of rudely intruding upon our uh, our belief that we live in a, in a kind of post-everything world, and I, I like this idea of history kind of wreaking its vengeance on us. And I think it's a very apt way to describe things. And uh, one thing I was thinking about was your book about the First World War, published uh, five or six years ago, First World War, no, Still No End in Sight, in which you argued that a lot of those questions and issues, both geopolitically and ideologically, that were raised by the First World War are still unresolved, still impact on how we think and live today. And, and, and you mentioned just there the, the potential for a third world war, which we had convinced ourselves could never happen. So I'm just wondering, uh, I wanted to ask you, you know, if the post first world war settlements were kind of blown up by the second world war, which kind of really dragged them back to the surface of geopolitical life. Do you think it's now possible that the post second world war settlements, which we thought had resolved all the problems in Europe and Germany's gone back to being a normal country and the Cold War has come to an end and Russia is no longer the Soviet Union. It's now this slightly ailing superpower that was largely under control. Do you think those post-Second World War, post-Cold War settlements are now potentially being called into question by what's happening in Ukraine? And what are the potential consequences of that? Yeah, I think it's very much being called into question. The post-Second World War settlement uh, based on the policy of containment, you know, President Truman's policy of containment did work to some extent, you know, for for the Cold War years, uh, where you had this kind of balance of power that was very clearly and consciously recognized by all the different parties. Uh, I think that with the Cold War ending and ending very suddenly, uh, that kind of thinking about how you maintain a balance of power uh, began to uh, sort of somehow disappear. I mean, there were reasons for that, because the first reason was that it seemed for a while that you now had uh, an American uh, sort of nation that was so powerful that it was a single hegemonic power uh, like no other. And uh, that appeared to be a historical phenomenon that would last for a very, very long time. That now is no longer the case, because we live in a multipolar world, and America is is not only uh, not very good at projecting its own power, but is internally divided. You have to remember that there's no appetite in America for any kind of war. If, if there was a war, you wouldn't have the masses, you know, sort of signing up to defend the nation, which, by the way, is the case for uh, you know, Britain, France, Germany, mm -hmm. all the other Western powers. That has come to an end. And one of the things that has that has occurred is that, particularly those countries that that were part of the Soviet block, you know, sort of still uh, are not integrated into the world in the way that the Western powers are. And I think that the, the war in the Ukraine is a symptom of the unresolved questions, particularly the unresolved question, which is that uh, Russia needed to have been brought into the world a, on a slightly more generous basis than was the case in the past. Uh, so what I think has happened now is that given the fact that um, that uh, era has come to an end, 
we're now faced with a very simple fact, which is that whatever happens in this war, Russia will never be the same again. Mm. And you know, people forget that Russia is a, a regional power that is very fragile and very, very weak. And even if Russia gives in, loses the war, or they come to some kind of temporary ceasefire or, or any kind of an arrangement, there's no victory for, for, for us here in the West because if Russia implodes, as there's a, a lot of potential for it to implode, it could spread to very large parts of the world, both in Asia and, and within Europe. And that's something that American foreign policy analysts or British foreign policy analysts haven't really taken on, on board. Um, and also, uh, there's the potential for the war to spread to Europe directly. I mm. think that's very real. And we, see, we saw that yesterday when uh, Russian missiles you know, sort of hit uh, a military base about five or six miles from the Polish border. Mm. I mean, how close you know, do, do you want that to get to a NATO country. So there's a lot of potential for the things for things to get out of hand, often unwittingly. You know, it's not as if anybody wants a world war. It's just that at the moment the uh, there's no mechanism whereby the conflicts of interest can be resolved in a diplomatic kind of a way like they were in the nineteenth century, during the middle of the nineteenth century in particular, when you had the Congress of Vienna and other kind of mechanisms that could take into account different national geopolitical interests. That's a very useful overview of the dangerous moment that we find ourselves in. And it's precisely at a moment like this that you would want some geopolitical adults in the room, but we seem to, to lack those um, in many countries. But I want to ask you just um, in relation to the directly in relation to the conflict itself, I want to ask you the question of who's to blame. I know that's a very simple question, and it might appear slightly moralistic too. But one of the things that we've explored on Spiked for a long time is the fairly reckless behavior of NATO in terms of its ever more eastward expansion. And some of that was driven precisely by the trends you're describing, which is a lack of geopolitical sense, a lack of how, of what the consequences of your action might be and what the blowback might be. Um, and, you know, more sensible uh, uh, geopolitical actors like George Kennan, even Margaret Thatcher, kind of cautioned against the eastward expansion of NATO. So that obviously creates Russian security concerns, and it's it, and it, it it makes sense to me that Russia would have those security concerns if NATO is basically knocking on its door. But do you think there's a danger that that? that we then alleviate Russia of responsibility for what it's currently doing in Ukraine and almost treat it as an infant of international affairs. You know, look what you've made me do now. I had no choice. So how, morally speaking, how do you work out the question of responsibility for what's currently happening in Ukraine and, and who bears responsibility for the tragedy that's unfolding there and the potential for it to spill beyond Ukraine's borders? Well, I think there are two separate issues. There is the wider context, and I think that in the wider context, the reluctance of the West to uh, accommodate to Russia's security concerns was a major disastrous mistake, mm. uh, which did create a dynamic which eventually led to uh, a situation where some kind of a conflict was inevitable. Yeah. I think in many ways uh, there's a parallel here, for example, with the end of the First World War, 
when uh, American France in particular uh, imposed very, very uh, burdensome economic uh, penalties upon Germany mm-hmm. uh, and uh, created a situation where the German economy uh, was in real crisis in the post-war years and created a kind of bitterness, you know, sort of which uh, did fuel uh, sort of nationalistic, jingoistic kind of sentiments. So in that sense, there's a kind of parallel here. But it's important not to confuse the mistakes and even historical errors that were made both you know, after the First World War or now, uh, not to confuse that with the fact that at the end of the day, it was you know, the, the, the Germans who self-consciously and willingly started a Second World War for which they are to blame, essentially, nobody else, mm. any more than now, where even though the NATO uh, nations and America in particular uh, often behave fairly provocatively in the past. That doesn't in any way uh, alleviate the fact that it's uh, Putin and, and, and the Russian uh, sort of uh, uh, oligarchy that's responsible uh, for creating uh, this warlike situation. Obviously, as you know from history, things are never black and white mm. because in the background all, there are all these kind of conflicting forces. You know, and it's not the case that Ukraine was an angel. Mm. historically, and Russia was the devil. It's much more complicated. You know, both sides had their, had created a lot of errors and, and, and mistakes and did not behave in a responsible way. But, you know, when it came to the invasion of Ukraine, for that, Russia is entirely to blame and nobody else. So in relation, just one more thing on the on the conflict itself, in relation to the current uh, invasion of Ukraine and the resistance that the Ukrainian people are currently putting up, I mean, there is something quite positive, isn't there, in this assertion by significant sections of the Ukrainian population of not only their right to be nationally independent and to enjoy national sovereignty, but also their willingness to sacrifice their former lives in order to fight for what they currently believe is the right thing to do. Now, of course, this might end up being uh, infused with all sorts of complicating factors, especially if there were to be uh, more of a projection of Western needs onto the Ukrainian conflict and the implosion of Russia and the instability that that itself might unleash. But at the moment, in terms of the standoff that we're seeing between Russia and Ukraine, there is something positive in that assertion of the rights of national sovereignty, which is a fairly rare assertion to see in the 21st century. Very much so. and. Uh... I hope that this is something that has uh, capacity to endure beyond this phase of the war, because it may well be the case that we're in a very early phase of the war, uh, that Russia will, in a sense, stop for a while uh, and try to maneuver things in such a way as to extricate itself, only to then you know, sort of continue with, with, with the conflict kind of later on. But I think it's, it's extremely uh, inspiring to see that kind of reaction. Mm. And it's, it's inspiring to see people standing up for their homes, for their families, for their communities. And, and often I tell my friends who are English, is, would, would English people react in the same way yeah. if they were uh, invaded by a foreign power? I hope, you know, I would like to see that happen in England as well. But I'm not so sure that there is the kind of cultural support for that kind of uh, defiance that we're seeing in the Ukraine. I want to come back to that cultural question in a moment. But the other thing I wanted to ask you is about the role of the West 
in relation to the to the conflict as it currently exists not only in this, in the terms of what we've already discussed which is the the way in which the geopolitical stupidity i guess or immaturity has led to this kind of rather provocative reckless very dangerous situation but also the question of what the west might do now or could do now in order to potentially assist the Ukrainian people or shift things in a slightly more positive direction. And one of the reasons I wanted to ask you about this is because I've been on demonstrations with you in the past in which people like you and I have argued against Western intervention and we've carried placards saying things like no Western solution. And we've talked about the often very complicating and and destructive role that Western blundering Western intervention into other people's war zones can have. Um, but I've noticed that more recently over the past couple of weeks, you seem to have been a slightly more open-minded to the possibility of some form of Western intervention, maybe to a, a UN enforced no-fly zone or to other forms of assistance that might help the Ukrainian people in their current struggle against the Russian invasion. So has something changed there? What's what's currently driving your thinking in relation to things the West might potentially do in relation to this conflict? Well, there's, there's two issues. I mean, one is that uh, the conflict between the Ukraine and Russia is very specific, some very unique characteristics. You know, so if, insofar as you're helping the Ukrainians, you're helping a relatively small nation you know, preserve its national independence, its, uh, its national sovereignty against what is a regional superpower. I mean, that's what it is, a, re- a regional superpower. That's very different than some of the conflicts that uh, we might have seen in the past, Libya, Syria, Iraq, any of those, uh, it were essentially attempts at regime change of some sort or another uh, by America, which you know, one could legitimately Oppose. And I'm, it's not that I'm asking for Western intervention yeah. in that kind of sense. What I'm really saying is this, that Ukraine is, is probably the most important uh, bulwark between Russia and Europe. It's the only nation that's got any anything like the military capacity uh, to be able to slow or, or halt any kind of uh, Russian ambition to expand. And in that sense, it's a, it's a very important buffer between Russia and the rest of Europe. If, if, if Ukraine goes, then there is very little chance for Poland or the Baltic states or Moldavia or any of the other uh, nearby countries to have the means to be able to secure their own interests. It would be very, very difficult if that was the case. So there's a lot at stake yeah. in trying to preserve uh, Ukraine as an, as an integral sovereign power. So that's, that's my thinking. I'm also worried about the fact that if uh, the West merely uh, relies on economic means, economic sanctions, to put pressure on Russia, that will have a essentially limited impact. We know that sanctions uh, do not necessarily have the intended results. If you look at the case of Venezuela or Cuba or a number of other nations, Iran for that matter, that have experienced sanctions, they might have suffered economically. But um, if that country has got, uh, you know, sort of uh, a certain degree of will and, and willpower, they will be able to withstand that kind of a pressure. And what I'm worried about is that uh, Russia, in a sense, started this war 
because it felt it had a free pass to do it. It was a, they felt there was no risk that the West would stand up and fight. It, and that basically created an opportunity for someone like Putin to exploit the uh, declaration by the West that no matter what Russia did, they weren't going to use any military uh, force or power to stop them from doing that. And that was like a green light. And that seems to be somehow a, a very irresponsible thing to have done. And therefore, we now have to think of other ways of intervening or, or securing uh, a certain degree of uh, freedom for Ukraine, providing them with resources uh, that, is, that goes way beyond what they're receiving now at this moment. That brings me on to another question I wanted to ask you, which is about the relationship between Western disarray and what Russia is currently doing. Now, of course, one has to be very careful not to overemphasize Russian coherence, because there are huge numbers of problems within the Russian oligarchy, and also in relation, by all accounts, to its war in Ukraine. And there's a sense not only that this is an expression of imperial ambitions, but also there's an element of lashing out. Then there's an element that it feels quite reckless, even from Russia's own perspective. So you wouldn't want to exaggerate Russian coherence, but it does seem to me, as you've just indicated, that there is a link, there is almost a symbiotic relationship between a West which feels a bit confused, a bit incoherent, which frequently advertises its unwillingness to really get stuck into defending its allies or defending its values or defending its virtues. We saw that most clearly in relation to Afghanistan, where the Taliban comes knocking on the door of Kabul and the West just goes away and uh, lots of terrible things happen as a consequence of that. So is there a, a relationship between what the West unwittingly says about itself on the international sphere and, and and the kind of slightly strange message it sends to the world through its actions and the way in which Russia felt that it had the confidence and, as you say, the free pass to do what it's currently doing in Ukraine. Yeah, I think that's very much the case. If, you, if you're sitting in the Kremlin and you look at the state of preparedness of NATO forces, yeah. if you look at the complete decline of any kind of military or, or a warrior culture mm-hmm. within Western societies. If you look at the, the way in which uh, you know, sort of governments you know, sort of have become entirely detached from geopolitical issues and are you know, sort of uh, being worried about internal cultural kind of matters. And if in addition to that, Biden, President Biden, then goes on record and says, that you know that we are not going to do anything yeah. serious, uh, grown up to fight back against any kind of Russian invasion. And from that point of view, that's seen as well. Maybe it's now or never. Maybe now is the time for us to make our moves. Maybe maybe now is our time to assert ourselves on the global plane and demand greater respect and uh, ensure that our security concerns uh, prevail. And so in that sense, there is a kind of, you know, there's a relationship there, which uh, still continues. I mean, many Western commentators uh, argue that uh, Putin must be extremely surprised by the uh, reassertion of Western unity, the reassertion of NATO as uh, having some kind of coherence and a logic to it. And there's there's an assumption that somehow the old problems 
that have divided the West have gone away. But then all you got to do is look a little bit closer and you'll find that the reaction of Germany and France are very different, at least outwardly very, very different than that of uh, Britain and America. And you have very different emphasis on what can and cannot be done. And they can't even uh, agree on on a common energy strategy. They can't even agree on a common banking strategy. So, yes, I think under those circumstances, there still is a, a, a palpable sense of weakness and and confusion in the reaction of the West. If following on from that, one other problem is is a sense of moral defeatism or cultural defeatism in the West and the question of what impact that has too. I thought one of the most interesting points made over the past two weeks of the war was by the former Ukrainian ambassador to Austria. He did a tweet in which he said that he's doing lots of interviews with the Western media and he keeps getting a sense from Western journalists that they would rather that the whole thing just stopped and that Ukraine would accommodate with Russia and concede to some of Russia's demands. And he, he raised this really interesting question. He said, why are they saying that? And he says, is it because they know that they wouldn't be fighting like us if they were in our shoes? And I thought it was a very confronting question, a very challenging question, and something that he clearly picked up quite instinctively and quite keenly from the conversations he was having with Western journalists. And I wanted to ask you about the the lack of cultural resources or moral resources in the West for allying with this kind of fight or for engaging in this kind of fight ourselves if push were to come to shove. And do you think there is a contrast not only between the geopolitical West and the geopolitical ambitions of Russia, but also between the defeatism, the moral defeatism that impacts on certain Western forms of thinking and Ukrainian resolve and I think there are some Ukrainians who are recognizing a bit of a disconnect between those two things and are worrying that as a consequence, they're being left slightly on their own. Yeah, I think there is a, a sense of uh, cultural malaise uh, lurking in the background in Western societies that certainly spiked as often discussed. And when we're talking about things like the cultural wars, mm. You know, the issues at stake aren't just simply gender-related issues or pronouns or any of the usual uh, sort of battles and conflicts that are that make the headlines. But it's also to do with the fact that uh, very fundamental ideals uh, that are essential to a sense of uh, national identity, things like patriotism, things like loyalty, things like duty, things like service, have lost their meaning. And they're no longer ideals that school children learn about. They're not ideals that university students are told to take seriously. In fact, they're often seen as a bit of a joke, you know, sort of, and often laughed at. The very idea that duty is something that, you know, you should take seriously, you know, uh, is, is the very opposite to our very chilled out, laid back, you know, sort of flexible society. So under those circumstances, you know, those ideals that underpin a kind of ethos of, of, of purpose and an ethos of reliability within a kind of global context are, are extremely weak and, you know, sort of influence a relatively small section of our population and an even smaller section of our elites and our cultural elites. It's almost like a pyramid that the, the, the higher you are among the elites, the less influence they are by it. So under those circumstances, 
the 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 war is seen very much through the prism of a of a kind of humanitarian. Mm. Let's be nice and and send uh, food packages to uh, to the Ukraine kind of prism, rather than a, a much more serious geopolitical one. I think what is interesting, by the way, is that it is possible that Russia may have, may begin to suffer from a very similar process, because I think that uh, the idea that somehow the Russian population is mobilized and it's pro-war in that kind of old-fashioned, you know, you know, let's go to battle. People are queuing up, signing up to to join the army. I, I think that that is really not on at the moment, yeah. and and that means that our period is different than global conflicts in the past. And that's a, an issue that we'll have to, in a sense, revisit when we kind of take into account the relationship between uh, what politicians do and, and how the masses feel about these kinds of conflicts, whether they actually feel that it's part of their conflict rather than somebody else's. One of the things that struck me about the Western commentary on this at the moment is the there's this notion that well, I've, I've had it said directly to me, why are you still talking about the culture wars? Why are you still talking about wokeness? This is proper politics. This is serious politics. This is geopolitics. So stop talking about this frivolous thing, these frivolous things. But I think the argument that you have made in your most recent piece of Spiked, and also uh, the, which you've just indicated now, is that the culture war is not simply some side issue that Western governments and Western elites engage in because they don't want to talk about anything else. I mean, it is a very real phenomenon that impacts not only on domestic life in terms of how we educate children, how we understand our his history, how we uh, conceive of ourselves culturally and morally, but it also, as you said earlier, in relation to the American elites and their tendency to project the culture wars into global affairs, it also impacts on even on geopolitics itself. So could you just give us an outline of, of how you conceive of, of the culture wars? Because I think to some people, it is seen as a bit of a kind of almost like a purposeful distraction that we've drawn up because it's more fun, it's more interesting, it's lighter. It means we can avoid the tough stuff about the economy and the future and war. But actually, it speaks to a far graver corrosion of values in the West, and that necessarily will impact on almost all aspects of political life. Yes, I mean, if you go back to the beginning of our conversation, you know, we talked about the historical amnesia that's enveloped, you know, uh, the, particularly the Western world. And part and parcel of that historical amnesia is almost a self-conscious desire to distance our society from whatever has gone on in the past not to think that anything that's gone on before is of any relevance uh, at the moment. And certain sections of Western society have made it almost a virtue to be, be essentially to, to continually make fun of the past, to uh, represent the past as this kind of morally inferior world that we've thankfully left behind. And part and parcel of that, of course, is you not only uh, renounce the past and, and renounce history, but you, you also essentially try to devalue the values of the past. Mm -hmm. So all the values that were seen as being central to being a good citizen, to, to being a, a responsible member of society, are now regarded in a much more uh, uh, questioning way. And therefore what has happened is that you know, the cultural values which were foundational 
in terms of how public life, the democratic public life had to be represented, have become extremely fragile in, in, in the current moment. And that's why it, it is then possible for these ludicrous cultural, you know, sort of uh, conflicts to emerge over things that are at first sight appear very silly. Yeah. Discussions as to whether, you know, sort of uh, a trans woman is a woman you know, sort of uh, an inability to see a distinction between a man and a woman, you know, which you would think is just unthinkable. Those things can occur once the basic values that that society and humanity has cultivated over the centuries are seen as being marginal or, 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 or even worse, seen as things that we have to reject. And I think when that occurs, then uh, our capacity is to have a, a sense of national interest, our capacity to think in a kind of geopolitical way is fatally undermined. Under those circumstances, what is a national interest? What is a nation's interest? When the very idea of a nation is being contested, when when somehow it's seen by our cultural elites that having a national interest is by definition a bad thing because we should be thinking globally. We should be global citizens rather than national national ones. So those circumstances, we we have a situation where the culture war directly interweaves with political calculations. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the interesting things is that the the trans issue, which is a key component of the culture war, has been thrown into sharp relief by the events in Ukraine because one of the things that Western media outlets have flagged up is that all men aged between 18 and 60 are forbidden from leaving Ukraine. They have to stay and fight. And of course, there is the issue of trans women, i.e. biological males, some of whom have been prevented from leaving because they are men and the presumption is that they should fight. And you couldn't ask for a clearer confrontation with that question of what is a man and what is a woman and what role should they play in society. And I think that the fact that Western media outlets have latched on to that relatively trivial aspect of the conflict is very interesting. But I I wanted to ask you uh, a couple of final questions on the potential impact of all of this, I guess, geopolitically and domestically. So just to start with the potential geopolitical impact, one of the things that I'm finding frustrating at the moment is the way in which lots of Western observers are projecting their own obsessions and concerns onto the war in Ukraine. So for example, you had Polly Toynbee in The Guardian saying, look, there are positive elements to this. It will bring Europe together. It will weaken Brexit because Britain will have to work more closely with Europe in these kinds of situations. She even says that it will resuscitate the reputation of the BBC because everyone needs the BBC in times of war. So the very narrow kind of, you know, North London clique concerns being projected onto this incredibly grave conflict. And then you had a writer for the New Republic saying, look, the Ukrainians are probably going to lose. Russia is more powerful, but the liberal order has already won because we have pushed Russia back. We've put it back in its box. We've imposed extraordinary sanctions and we've pulled together America and Europe to really send a message to the world. And I can't help thinking that that's a bit delusional and that actually behind these kind of slightly, uh, these expressions of bravado, there are lots of tensions and difficulties and cultural disarray lurking even within the Western response. So firstly, geopolitically, in relation to Europe, 
Do you buy the idea that this will tie Europe together in a significant way and undermine populism and Brexit, or is it more complicated than that? I think it's a, it's, it's a very complicated issue. I, I think that the reaction to Ukraine, the war in Ukraine in Europe, is already very differential yeah. between different nations and, and in the way that people react. I think it has to be borne in mind that there's no appetite anywhere in Europe on the part of the public, on the part of the masses, for getting involved in the Ukraine in anything other than a in a humanitarian kind of fashion. So there's a kind of real reluctance to uh, sort of uh, mobilize and, and to take seriously the, 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 the kind of the bigger, more difficult issues that are at stake here. I mean, that might change, but that's the case at the moment. But I think what you do have is a, is a kind of uh, outward coming together. Uh, I mean, first of all, an outward coming together to almost, uh, you know, kind of save NATO mm. from uh, complete uh, sort of ossification, because NATO had, had really become this empty organization that was very much living off uh, its its past rather than doing anything relevant in the here and now. It was looking for a, a reason for its existence, and I think it's partially found that at least at the organizational level. But whether that will give, mean that NATO will have a the support, the military support, active military support that, that will make a difference is, is far from clear. Everybody's talking about the need to spend more money on defense, but that's a, a very belated after the event yeah. attempt to kind of uh, try to rescue the situation. I think the, the one thing that is clear is that uh, at the moment there's a kind of common uh, sense of crisis, a common sense of insecurity, which could kind of push people towards one another, but it will do so in a superficial way because the un- underlying rivalries and tensions and conflicts uh, haven't really gone away at all. And you could tell that almost immediately. When last week, the, you know, the government of Holland basically came out and said, there's no way that we're going to have Ukraine joining the European Union yeah. you know, very quickly off the mark uh, so that uh, at least some parts of Europe have got very, very little limits as to how far they're prepared to support Ukraine. And uh, what that will mean is that other other countries will say things out loud that we're going to do all these things for Ukraine because they will know that and push comes to shove, the EU will hold them back. Uh, I thought it was very interesting that uh, Biden told Poland in no uncertain terms that there's no way you're going to be allowed to send airplanes to Ukraine. Mm. So whilst, you know, sort of going on about you know, how brave you are making big statements. When push comes to shove, there is a kind of red line beyond which you know, uh, these nations will not go. Absolutely. And of course, there's also the the European Union's continuing sanctioning of Hungary and Poland at precisely a time they're playing a fairly heroic role in Europe in terms of the number of Ukrainian refugees that they're accepting and the the role that they're playing in relation to that conflict, which I thought speaks to, you know, the idea that Europe has come together is obviously a complete fantasy. And then in relation to the geopolitical impact beyond Europe, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned earlier that, you know, the reality that we live in a multipolar world, it's no longer American domination. Those trends, I guess, will potentially be intensified by this. And I wanted to ask you particularly about Russia and China. Russia, I think, is a bit more unpredictable. It could well implode on the back of this. This could be an 
an, an expression of a last gasp of Putinism more than anything else. Um, but I wondered how you think China is observing this situation, whether you read some reports saying China will be emboldened by this. Of course, you read other reports saying China is uh, not particularly happy with Russia's actions in Ukraine. China is not really fond of instability and conflict. What do you think will be the impact on Russia and China and their ability to emerge as greater powers in the multipolar world? Well, I think in the short run, uh, there's a possibility of greater cooperation between these two nations. Mm. And that will be done very much on China's terms rather than on Russia's terms. But I think in the long run, the tension between uh, China and Russia is arguably no less than the tension between Russia and the West. Yeah. And we have to remember that uh, Russia does not want to be an Asiatic power. Russia wants to be a European power. It's, it's kind of pulled to the West rather than towards Asia. And uh, one of the, the I mean, there are numerous issues that ha have not really been discussed properly, which is to do with the fact that uh, uh, there are common areas of, of agreement between China but there are also areas of disagreement between the China because they essentially are competitors as well mm. for influence within uh, sort of that, that particular region. So at the moment, this is really too soon. And I think that as I read the world situation, things are totally unsettled. Mm. It's not clear who's going to be whose allies tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. It's very much like it was in the 19th century or in other historical moments when different powers and nations opportunistically came together, came apart, and uh, it was very rare for durable alliances to be forged. At the moment, there is not, nothing in the world that kind of is, pull, is pulling together nations. And the, the myth that liberal democracies, so-called in the West, have got this common sense, this common vision, is, is, a bit, is, is essentially propaganda rather than reality. There is a, a long, long, long way to go before there's a kind of common, uh, coherent understanding that will bring people together in the way it did, for example, during Second World War against the Nazis. Okay, Frank, my final question is on how you feel about Ukraine, or rather how you think people should feel about Ukraine. Because one thing I've noticed is that there is an enormous amount of interest in what's going on. People I know who are not particularly interested in politics are talking about it all the time. Uh, they're reading voraciously around this issue, and uh, they are very concerned with what's happening. And there's, there's a huge outpouring of support for President Zelensky, who's become a bit of an idol in the West in a slightly strange way at times, but also he has risen to the occasion. He has demonstrated very positive virtues. And I think lots of ordinary people in the West are probably thinking, why do we not have politicians who are a bit more like that? So there's some projection and some um, desire for something similar over here, I think. But what I wanted to ask you is that a lot of that sentiment, I think, is driven by a kind of supposedly humanitarian concern. How can we help? What should we do about refugees? Can I donate money? Can I wear a Ukraine ribbon? I mean, it, it kind of slightly falls into that understanding of how politics operates. But there is something larger, isn't there, that we should take an interest in, which is there is a movement in Ukraine for to preserve national self-determination, to uh, defend their right to 
organize their affairs as they see fit without the overbearing influence of a, a nearby powerful state. So in terms of the positivity of that, that is something we should hold on to, isn't it? And it is worth arguing that a victory for Ukrainian independence would be in some ways a victory for others of us who believe in democracy and in, who believe in national self-determination. Yeah, I think very much so. I think that in the first instance, events in Ukraine showed, shows the importance of borders. Mm-hmm. And I, I've written a lot about the need to rehabilitate the idea of borders. They're essential for creating a sense of community. They're essential for uh, uh, sort of creating a sense of security without which life becomes extremely uh, disorienting. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, what's happening in the Ukraine demonstrates as a lesson for us that at the end of the day, a people needs to have their own space. They need to have their own boundaries. They need to have their own sovereignty. Because sovereignty isn't just simply a, an empty rhetorical principle. Sovereignty is something that people live. It's integral to their to their lives. And if that's gone, then people's sense of uh, ontological security uh, is fatally undermined. And and I think that, that that Ukraine shows us, and we can learn from that. Certainly, people here in Britain, you know, should be pleased that. You now have a Brexit world rather than a non-Brexit world mm-hmm. because it that allows us to take our own boundaries a little bit more seriously. It gives us more scope to cultivate our own means of security, which will be quite important for us. And these are not selfish, narrow-minded, chauvinistic ideals. These are just very basic ideals that we should be able to take for granted. But they give us this taken-for-granted ways of being ourselves uh, being able to share something together, which is just important for, for all of us to feel, uh, feel strong. So for me, Ukraine is really important from that point of view. And no matter what happens, you know, sort of in the weeks and the months ahead, uh, the very fact that Ukraine demonstrated that these issues are of tremendous importance, they are central to our future, provides us with a very important message and a very important lesson that's been forgotten by the people that run our societies here in the West. And and it's about time that they woke up to realities and grew up a little bit more and stopped behaving in such kind of infantilized kind of a way. Frank Freddy, thank you very much. Nice talking to you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.